0: you can tell us what you've been up to. Great. It's uh, the last time I've seen you. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, back by popular demand, my guest today is Dr. Ashley Gerhardt, and she's going to be talking about evidence of a highly processed food substance use disorder. Please welcome her back to the show. Thanks for coming on. I know how busy you are with kids and all that kind of stuff, so I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being able to chat about this and kind of get the word out on what we're working on. I I can't wait to hear what you've been up to and all the research you do in the
0: lab. But I guess my first question, Dr. Gerhardt, is this. So I've done over 1600 episodes of Chef AJ Live and probably a thousand of the guests have been doctors, many of them medical doctors. Not every topic we're talking about has to do with food addiction or obesity. Lots of them do. And I am just, I cannot believe how many doctors medical doctors just don't believe that food addiction is a thing. And I'm curious, wow. is it just the name they don't like? You have so much evidence that it exists in a percentage of the population. Why are even people so
1: reticent to believe that it it exists? Oh, it's been such an interesting question um, that I have grappled with a lot over the course of my career. And I What I find is that a lot of the misunderstanding comes from the idea of what addiction is and what it looks like. I think a lot of people picture in their head things like an illegal drug that super intoxicates you and can cause overdose, something like if you think of heroin or cocaine, but really... When we look at the most deadly addictive drug in our society, it's tobacco cigarettes that's killing more people than alcohol and opioids and cocaine combined. And there were as a debate for decades and decades and decades about whether cigarettes could really be addictive because they didn't look like addictive drugs. You know, they were illegal. They were easily accessible. So many people were using them um, that, you know, people weren't going to overdose on them. but they were deadly. And when people wanted to quit, tried to quit, knew it was killing them and they couldn't, that was really some of the most key evidence that this wasn't just a bad habit, but something that was truly addictive. And so I think we're kind of at now where we were with tobacco, you know, 50, 60 years ago, where we spent a couple of decades realizing that tobacco was really bad for you. It really had bad health consequences. But the assumption was people could stop if they wanted to, and anybody who wasn't stopping, it was just because they weren't trying hard enough. And it took us a couple more decades of debate and science to be able to get to a point to say, "Oh no, that what's going on here is a key core addictive process that's hooking people." And I think food is also a little bit more complex, and that you know we we called it food addiction when we did this research when we started it because we didn't really have great science on what what sorts of foods. Is it all foods that's equally likely to trigger an addictive process? You know, our research over time has really kind of honed in on the idea that it's not all foods. It's not beans, fruits, veggies, you know, lean meats that are really triggering people to consume compulsively. It's foods that have been designed and engineered to be intensely unnaturally rewarding um, through typically high levels of refined carbohydrates like sugars and flours and or fats, and often that combination. And in the field, we're still really grappling with what is the best term? Is it ultra processed food? Is it hyper palatable food? What what is that term? And I think that contributes to some of the confusion around um, how best to conceptualize this. Yeah, well, maybe it needs a makeover, you know, maybe it needs a campaign. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, you know, I've had people say to me a lot over the course of my career, you know, I'm totally behind you and I totally think all the research you're finding is really true and accurate, but I just don't like the word addiction. It just doesn't make me feel comfortable. And so if you called it something else like hyper palatable food drive or something, then I would, I would totally be behind it. But I think why I have stuck to my guns on saying, you know, it, addiction is, A, the science supports it. You know, if if we know a lot about addiction and we know how addictive substances are created and we know a lot of information about how they're most effectively treated. And so to create some new word or construct to Label something that is actually an addictive process, I think can confuse and, and not allow us to learn from the wisdom of what we've seen across other addictive substances. But you know, one thing that I think is notable, I don't know if I can share my screen with you, is um this sense that uh let me try and pull this up, that there is a feeling of when we when there's something that's addictive and we don't acknowledge that it's addictive, then it keeps the emphasis solely on the individual for not changing their eating behavior or their smoking behavior or their drinking behavior. And it really protects the industry. It allows the industry to say, pay no attention to us. You know, we just are making these products and people are just making these bad decisions to keep consuming them. And Um, you know, what we see in our work is that that doesn't seem to be the case. So if I I share my screen with you real quick, let me see if I can get this up and running. Um, Okay, so why would this matter? As when we've looked at So back with tobacco, back when we said, oh, no, tobacco is not addictive. You know, it's just an adult choice. This is what a Tobacco Institute document said. It said that's Big Tobacco, their cover groups. The entire matter of addiction is the most potent weapon a prosecuting attorney can have in a lung cancer cigarette case. We can't defend continued smoking as a free choice if the person was addicted. And so this idea of if this is addictive and we ignore that and we just say, oh, no, we need to come up with some new term that people feel more comfortable with, then I think it it lets, you know, big food go kind of unaccountable and allows them to kind of continue to target kids and, um, you know, poor communities really aggressively with their products without acknowledging or informing people that those products might be able to hook them very much in the way that something like tobacco can. Yeah. You know. Okay,
0: so are you familiar with a movie? I believe it came out in 2012 called Flight with Denzel Washington. I have not seen it yet, no. It's it's an amazing movie in general. And he was nominated for an Oscar, but that was mm-hmm. the year that Daniel Day-Lewis won for oh, yeah. President Lincoln. But it was an amazing movie about addiction. And there's this part where he clearly is a drug addict and an alcoholic, but, mm-hmm. but he's in denial. And he's like, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. I just choose to drink. Yeah. And you know, I, I there are people that do not struggle at all with processed foods. I have a skinny husband. Yep. He can eat anything. He'll be thin, whether he'll be healthy, you know, that yeah. I, if, if he ate that way I don't know and then there's other people you know that's saying one drink one drunk one cookie you know the whole box mm-hmm. and so if there isn't evidence for this processed food addiction why is it that certain people yeah. cannot stop eating certain foods it's not because they I mean I these are people that didn't have a bad childhood or I mean there's yeah. some people for whom these are like an intoxicating drug and these people, many people are watching today and I find myself in that category for me abstinence was the only way out I know that's not going to work for everyone but I I don't understand how people can deny that it exists for some
1: people. Yeah. And when we look at the percentages, I I agree with you. So I think, you know, um, we know with all addictive drugs, you know, a lot of people use them and they don't get addicted, right? Some people even use cocaine, use heroin, and about, you know, 15 to 20% of those users actually develop this kind of compulsive addictive profile, And the thing I always say to really kind of emphasize the empathy and the compassion here is no one knows, you know, you don't know if you're that person that either through the chemistry or the way it makes you feel, or your childhood or your brain chemistry, when you take that sip of alcohol, when you have that cookie, when you get that painkiller from your doctor, that you're going to be that person that it, it triggers that experience or not. Now, if we look at things that aren't addictive, no one's getting addicted to water, you know? If you drink too much water, it can kill you. But no one is like, I just can't stop compulsively drinking water until the point that I'm sodium depleted because it's just so intoxicating to me. And so you can have all the individual risk factors in the world. You can have a family history of addiction and depression and trauma and reward dysfunction in the brain. But if you're not exposed to that addictive substance or that addictive behavior, it's not going to trigger it for you. And so when I look at our society, to me, we didn't have the issues with binge eating, with diet related disease, with obesity, with severe obesity, until about the late 1970s and 80s on this scale. I mean, we weren't even tracking those things. Like Uh, Type 2 diabetes was called adult onset diabetes because kids never got it. And now, you know, we're we're seeing diseases like type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I mean, diseases that weren't even around that much are now hitting children because of the way our food environment is now set up with the sorts of foods that are both bad for us, not great for our health, but that they also trigger reward signals in such a potent way that it makes it hard to consume them in moderation for most people, but particularly if you might have that addictive response profile. So to me, to ignore the fact that there's been a really kind of clear change in the human experience where all of these things have kind of exploded. And when we watch around the globe, when we look at places like China and India and Brazil, we see their rates of childhood obesity and type 2 diabetes and binge eating, you know, start to go up as these highly processed, intensely rewarding foods start to dominate their food environment. And so to ignore the power of these um, is, I think, just a a huge problem. And we, you know, we say food, but in reality, you know, these, I, I, these, these sorts of foods really have more in common. These highly processed, intensely rewarding foods have more in common with tobacco and addictive drugs than they do real food. And here's just like another little visual is, um, what we see is that when, really ultra-processed, intensely rewarding foods like your sugar-sweetened beverages and your sodas and your salty foods and your sweets start to dominate a food environment. What you can see on these graphs is the bigger percentage of the food environment that is composed of these ultra-processed foods The more people stop eating the real food that nourishes us, the real food that used to be what humans existed on for the majority of the human experience on this globe, foods like beans and fruits and veggies. When the the foods in our environment start to be highly rewarding, highly enticing, very salient processed foods we start to gravitate and shift towards those foods and we stop eating things that nourish our body and our minds. And I think to me, some of the things that we've been working on a lot in my lab is really starting to focus not just on this idea of how these foods impact your physical health, which is very important because people are now dying of preventable deaths related to poor diet on par with what we see with tobacco around the globe. But, mental health and well-being. I mean, we're seeing just escalating rates of anxiety and depression, and there's and teens and kids and adults and older adults, and there's many factors that are contributing to that. But th- I think there's some really compelling initial evidence to suggest that the quality of the foods that we're eating can really have some notable impacts on our well-being. I mean, we know a lot of our neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, you know, our reward, our motivation, our well-being neurotransmitters. They're made in the gut and that we ultra processed foods aren't great for our gut health, for inflammation, for our immune system functioning, for our endocrine functioning. And so as we're relying on those foods to get calories and that they're so rewarding and enticing and they're replacing real nourishing foods I think that mental health and well being is an essential part of the equation for understanding the real public health toll of an environment that's dominated by these really highly processed foods.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, even if somebody's not addicted to them and can moderate, they're not healthy. I mean, they're not. That, that's the other thing. So, so I don't understand the problem for the people acknowledging this. You know, I always say that attendance is very light at the arugula anonymous meetings.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's so true. And that's, you know, that's what our research really finds. We can't get people, we have been having, you know, multi million dollar educational campaigns trying to encourage people to eat more fruits and veggies. And you know what, those campaigns just aren't working that well. And it, you know, if you go if my doctor, if I go into my doctor and he's like, oh, Ashley, I'm sorry, bad news. You have to eat, start eating less broccoli. I'm gonna be like, okay, I'm like, that's easy. I could do that. But if I go into my doctor, he's like, less chocolate, you know, less sweets. That's because of the compelling nature of those substances that's a hard thing to cut down. And I think we kind of missed that a little bit. You know, I one thing I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on, Chef AJ, is like I have some mixed feelings about kind of intuitive eating and some of our messaging around that because you know, Kevin Hall has this just beautiful, super scientifically rigorous study looking at these aren't even, you know, addictive eaters. These are just your average American and when they're living in a food environment at the National Institute of Health, that's ultra processed foods, they just passively eat 500 more calories a day than they do when they have access to the same amount of calories with the same convenience and the same, you know, no cost, but it's actual real minimally processed foods. They eat 500 less calories a day without even noticing it. And so I just feel like these industrially created, you know, really intensely rewarding processed foods that are essentially, you know, pre-digested for us, they're not hitting our satiety signals, they're not nourishing us, that we don't, we are engineered to be able to trust our intuitions around these foods and the way we can more so when it's actual food. And so I worry a little bit when we tell people that, you know, the only answer here is to just, you know, trust your hunger and satiety signals. I worry that we're setting people up to fail in this food environment. You, you have these vulnerabilities. Well, first of all, I believe if you're an addict, you can't trust your <laughs> Yourself anyway, but yeah. you
0: can't trust your satiety signals for food yeah. that you are not designed to eat. Yeah. These foods were engineered to, uh, Dr. Goldhammer has been on the show many times to actually. Mm-hmm. Your brain satiety mechanisms cause yeah. you to exponentially overeat. So how can you intuitively eat on something that's not even food? It doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, we've known, like when did, when did sugar booze come out? Like 1975? Oh, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, there has been evidence that sh- at least sugar has been addictive for so long. But I think the fact that there's so much money in the product that yeah. people are innocent, just like, you know, I'm sure the tobacco companies weren't happy when, you know, it was proven that... that cancer was caught can be caused by smoking in many people. And that's
1: why many of them went on to buy the processed foods. That's exactly what I was gonna say, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. Because, you know, this has been shocking to me was the magnitude of the parallels between, you know, big processed food industries and tobacco that it's really, you know, Philip Morris, RJ Reynolds, they diversified when things started getting hot under the collar for their products and the addictive nature of it, and the harmful nature of it, they diversified by buying craft and general mills and Hawaiian punch. And, you know, there's really evidence that they used, you know, their know-how on how to, you know, these are two papers that I think are absolutely wonderful um, that for me were mind-boggling but how much they transferred their marketing strategies to target racial ethnic groups that they um, really transferred their focus on children uh, from tobacco and even flavor enhancers and additives that they were using in their cigarettes that were being transferred into their food portfolios and that you know if i wouldn't trust this industry To, you know, give good health advice or market products ethically to my children, you know, I don't trust them around food either or calories. And like you said, you know, I think there really is this important thing. We call it food, but is it really food? I mean, it it gives us calories. So does alcohol. You know, it's the, they're so far removed and altered and refined from actual food that it, that categorizing them in the same way, I think under, under communicates the magnitude to which they've been changed and altered and ways that really can impact our reward and motivation system and problematic ways. I don't think it processed food should be called food. Yeah. That's probably part of that makeover that you're suggesting that, you know, it's almost saying like food addiction. I find that people are like, but we all have to eat. And I'm like, yeah. And we all have to drink hydration will die of dehydration before we'll die of starvation. And you know what beer is mostly water, but it's, you know, five to you, it's got somewhere between, you know, some, depending on what kind you have, like five to 10% ethanol, even though it's still 90% water, that addictive agent in that can set you up. So you drink that beverage in a way that even if you know it's killing you or it's impacting your mental health or your marriage or your family, some people find that they're unable to to consume it in a healthy way. So when I look at these processed foods, or these processed substances or whatever we want to call them, you know, our reward and motivation system of the brain was really evolved to make sure we were getting enough calories. I mean, that's what the dopamine and the opioid system really, it was really shaped in large part by that. And so I think you don't have to start to you mess around with the food that much and start to amp up the sugar and, uh, you know, strip out the fiber and the protein and alter the food matrix and increase the salt and the fat in ways that start to turn that reward and motivation system into overdrive. And that's all that addictive drugs do. They just take that system that food naturally activates and turn up the volume on it. And some of the research that we have, I mean, this graph is a little busy, but I I, I think it's really striking. Um, I'll start with actually the one above it. You know, When we look at um, how these foods are impacting the brain, I'll have a lot of people be like, okay, well, I mean, I, I know that they use reward and motivation systems, these foods, but can they really be as potent as addictive drugs and how they activate them. Because when you give somebody something like cocaine, you know, it activates the dopamine system, the wanting system of our brain, you know, a thousand percent above baseline. It really is really potently stimulating. But you know, what I have to show you here is, um, let me just pull this up real quick, is this graph of how, you know, the fat and the sugars that the carbohydrates that are processed in our gut, they go up through systems in our body and end up converging on that same reward system in the brain is releasing striatal dopamine. And I think really interestingly, they do it through different pathways. One goes through um, the vagus nerve with fat, portal vein sensor for carbohydrate, and that When you look at naturally occurring food, food does exist in nature, it does not come high in both fat and carbohydrate. It's either high in one or the other. I think the fact that both of these systems, when you eat something like potato chips and chocolates, that has both carbohydrate and fat, that both of these systems are getting activated simultaneously is particularly converging in the brain in a way that's really potently rewarding. And if we look at some of the magnitude of the strength of that, you know, what I'm showing you here is I told you cocaine, you know, can release uh, dopamine at, a, you know, above a thousand percent. But when we look at nicotine and ethanol, things that are clearly addictive, um, you know, they activate dopamine release and the mesolimbic reward system at about 150 to 200 percent above baseline. That's, you know, way lower than cocaine, but clearly sufficient to trigger an addictive response what I'm showing you here is that same estimate of how much um, things like uh, processed foods, like these Fonzies, these like re- refined carbohydrates, it's an Italian uh, junk food, um, how it activates it, how sugar, how fat activates it. It's really in that same magnitude of 150 to 200% above baseline. So it's the same neural systems to the same magnitude as things like nicotine and ethanol. And it's triggering the same compulsive behaviors and killing people at levels that surpass or are are on par with known addictive substances. So I do ask myself a lot, like, okay, what is the evidence that these are not addictive substances? You know, I feel like I'm always on this, uh, you know, the defensive of kind of being like, um, you know, no, no, uh, I'm proving that they are addictive. But when I look at this, You know, it's really, when I look at like the Surgeon General's um, report for what foods um, were, how did we decide that tobacco was actually an addictive substance? It was that it triggered psychoactive, uh, that it triggered compulsive behavior, meant that people couldn't stop even when they wanted to. It was psychoactive, meaning it was stimulating the brain and changed the mood. It was highly reinforcing, meaning that people would work to administer it to themselves. And an additional criteria that's in the addiction science world now is that it triggers strong urges and cravings. And to me, when we look at these highly processed foods, they check every single box that was considered necessary and sufficient to determine that cigarettes were addictive. When we look at, you know, real food, they aren't consumed compulsively, you know, uh, like people aren't going super out of their way for the arugula, you know, in the same way that they are for the chocolate. The intensity of the urges and the craving and the way that it's altering the mood, they're all just much lower. And so when I look at how we've decided and um, kind of resolved controversies in the past about whether something's addictive or not, to me, the evidence base based on those criteria are met um, when it comes to how we understand these products and the role that they're having in our society.
0: You you brought up several good points. Are you familiar with a book called The Pleasure Trap by Dr. Lyle and Goldhammer? I have not read that one yet. I do no. get that for you. I actually, okay. did, I actually, did I love that. That. It, 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 to me, it's the story of food addiction, mm-hmm. because you talked about how these foods have carbohydrate and fat in, in, mm-hmm. the, in this book. They talk about how in nature, there is no food that has sugar and yeah. fat, together, sugar and salt together, yeah. fat and salt together, or sugar and fat and salt together. But this mm-hmm. is what processed food and restaurant food is. It was, mm-hmm. and, and so I feel like it was intent. I mean, I, do you think they intentionally en- engineered it to be addictive or they just got lucky?
1: Um, I think that the food industry uh, is smart enough to have learned from to the tobacco past, where they don't say addiction in their emails anymore. <laughs> but there is documented evidence that they say they're trying to engineer foods and maximize foods to hit the bliss point, to maximize craveability, to induce moorishness. So you want more and more and more. And a really thoughtful and definitive way. And so do they want, I think the baggage that comes with maybe creating and selling an addictive substance, um, no, but have they turned up the volume on the reward system in a really intentional way to the point that I would argue has crossed the threshold into creating addictive substances? I would say yes. And so I think with that comes a certain level of industry culpability, especially to children, especially to communities that are already disadvantaged. I mean, we're seeing um, our work, the individuals with food insecurity are really struggling um, at higher levels with highly processed food addiction. And that makes sense that they're targeted more by the food industry. When the SNAP benefits come out, um, grocery stores show more advertising for their you know, high profit margin, highly processed foods. Um, we're not all operating in the same food environment, let alone the stress and the you know, what, what foods you actually have access to. So I think of it as a social justice issue. We all have to eat. We don't get to opt out. Like, you know, we don't have to, we have to go into the grocery store. We have to engage with this food environment in the way that we don't necessarily have to with uh, other addictive drugs. And I've had people kind of try and then say, oh, well, because we all have to eat, you know, this, this can't be an addiction. And I'm like, Oh no, we all have to eat. So we need to be really concerned if the majority of calories in our food supply are delivered through products that have been engineered to essentially hook us, especially for kids, especially for disadvantaged kids that we don't want to set them up for life, you know, on not being nourished, not not giving them what they need mentally, physically, educationally to really flourish. Yeah, I, I don't know why more people aren't
0: upset about this. I mean, I don't have children, but I mean, you know, when I learned th- about this, really was really from the work of Dr. David Kessler's book. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. then Michael Moss's books, Hooked. So and good. Sugar and fat. I mean, I got so angry that I just stopped eating that stuff just based on that. Like, I didn't want to give them any money now that I knew how evil they were. But people, you know, processed food, ultra processed food is readily available, socially acceptable, easily totally. affordable. And I never understood. You're right. People have to eat, but do people have to eat when they're going to Petco to get their dog a leash? Like, mm-hmm. like do you understand these yes, food pet stores, Joanne's Fabrics, Michael Craft stores, hardware stores? I, I get that we have to eat, uh, but do we have to eat at these places? Like this, it just it just seems like there should be better legislation and that at some point the processed food industry
1: needs to be held accountable. But it seems like it's never going to happen because they're too. You know- I feel hope because when I look back at the history of tobacco, they were in the same boat where it was like, people were so used to tobacco. It was like key Americana, you know, it was a huge uh, staple crop, or like one of our main exports in the United States was tobacco products, there was such power. And people were kind of numb to that hundreds of thousands of people were dying every year. Cause you don't, if, if it was like overdose, right? You know, I think with the opioid epidemic, which was so important and caused so much harm, again, through an industry that created a product, you know that underestimated and didn't sufficiently communicate its addictive properties. Tried to underplay that. Aggressively marketed it, you know, uh, as much as they could. And then when people struggled, said, "Oh, it's not our opioids; it's just these bad apples who aren't, you know, don't have enough willpower." It's such the same playbook over and over again. And eventually, you know, in tobacco, they've always said we measured uh, progress in decades, not years. And that both feels overwhelming, but it does seem a such powerful bohemus that like it does take a while. And so for my own kind of sanity and doing this research and seeing this, I always kind of think about it of like, you know, I'm planting the seeds and trying to water the seeds and that's all we can do. And we see that eventually there's so much suffering. It's going to cost so much money that the, the health of, cost of this are going to be overwhelming for our governments, for our big corporations, for our major insurers. We're not going to be able to keep ignoring this forever, just like we did with tobacco. And I think especially because it's hitting kids at such a notable and striking way. And that is by design. You know, the industry goes after kids, tries to develop lifelong positive associations with their products at a very, very early age. We won't be able to be docile forever. And things like this, this sort of podcast, the books that you're talking about that are coming out more and more and more, this, this is the steps that happened with tobacco that eventually led to change. But with tobacco, we're still not done, you know, they've just kind of exported their, their approaches and their products to developing countries. So so many people are still dying. Um, And we need to do better. We, We know from tobacco, we know from alcohol, we know from opioids, that just kind of lecturing people when the environment is totally set up against them, the environment is set up to prioritize the profits of these big companies above health and well-being, that by human nature, we have a tendency to go to what the default is. And so it really does going to take courageous action from the change makers, the policymakers, the politicians, and our society to start to make a difference. And I don't think, unfortunately, they're going to start doing that until the financial cost of this to some of those like big companies, to those big insurers is really um, held deeply. And then I think there'll be some more motivation to change these things.
0: Are people still smoking? I know people are still smoking, Mm -hmm. but are they getting new smokers, at least in the United States, because they're not allowed to advertise like they used to Joel Camel and- and are, are they? Because how are they? If because at some point all their smokers are going to die, not necessarily yep. smoking, just because they're old. So what are they doing to try to get new younger smokers?
1: Yeah. So I mean, they they definitely still are. We see that it's a very uneven pattern of who's still smoking. And that, um, you know, kind of more rural areas, like more, um, more of a focus on kind of, uh, you know, maybe some lower, lower education level can be associated with it. But we we see a lot that like familial patterns, you know, if you had a parent that smoked, who was kind of hooked into that system, that's something that you saw growing up that was around you, you you're exposed to, accessible to you. So breaking those family cycles can be really challenging. And You know, thinking back with food we we know we definitely see associations between parental patterns of addictive intake of highly processed foods and um, children's patterns of addictive food intake so kind of that familial environment can be key. Um, we also see vaping, you know, they kind of keep coming up with new products. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. Um, there's a lot of controversy about vaping, but I, I kind of find that their marketing strategies and the flavors they're using things like cotton candy, you know, the FDA is kind of just catching up and trying to restrict that. That wasn't a product that was trying to help Smokers quit. That was about also trying to get new people to start using nicotine products as well, and especially through approaches that were appealing to teenagers. Uh, But really, their focus has gone to the developing world where there is less psychoeducation, where there's maybe less uh, about the addictive realm of it. Um, that there's less uh, strong government action against it. Um, But we see there was a really um, striking article that was devastating. I sent it to my lab and the Guardian about how the food industry is operating in developing countries like India. And not only they're making, they still do it here, tons of health claims Um, on their ultra processed food products, like really sugary caffeinated soda and say, Oh, it's brain boost. You know, it's going to give your kids energy. It's going to help your kids succeed. And I think in countries that are going through such huge nutrition and financial, you know, transitions all at once um, those kind of messages are, are really unethical and concerning and um, we have to do better and take care of people.
0: Absolutely. You know, it seems like all the addictive substances or the people struggle with, they're not things
1: that have ever existed in nature. You know, no, so, we, we totally, yeah, hundred percent. And I always try and emphasize that, that, you know, there's nothing magical about the nicotine chemical, right? Like, that's why I get a lot of it. it was like, well, you haven't identified like a single chemical that, it, you know, is clearly an addictive agent. Well, nicotine on its own, nicotine is an eggplant, you Know and when you consume eggplant, you get some nicotine, but the way the package through which that nicotine is delivered and eggplant, you know, people aren't like, Oh, I got to go get my eggplant break and <laughs> eggplant. We know addictive substances are man, are typically man made creations. Where what we do is we take something that is reinforcing, like some nicotine, like some sugar, which is a chemical, you know, like a lipid that has a chemical signature, these things are chemicals too. Um, and we alter them so they're delivered at a high dose, really rapidly into the body and into the brain. And that rapid high dose delivery especially when it's amplified by flavor enhancers, like that's something else that was really striking to me that I learned recently is how much the additives and tobacco are actually about flavor. So sugar and cocoa and menthol, like those are the most major additives and people get very attached to the flavor and mouthfeel of their specific brand of cigarettes. And that's why people will have a hard time kind of switching to another brand of cigarette because it doesn't taste like their brand of cigarette. So when I look at what we've done to the food supply, we find sugar rewarding, but people aren't, you know, like binging on bananas to the point that they vomit. You know, it's it's when it's refined and it's stripped down and it's put in this like processed uh, package that rapidly delivers the sugar and a broken down food matrix at a high dose quickly to the brain, and it's amplified by all these flavor enhancers and and additives that help it stay cheap and shelf stable. You know, it's the whole package. And that's what addictive substances are. It's not, they're not simple, actually, they're very complex. And so that's why if we did something like take menthol out of cigarettes, even if the nicotine is still in it, changing the flavor profile of menthol cigarettes would save millions of lives. Because the menthol starts to be, the, the desire for the menthol flavor starts to be one of the major drivers for the cigarette. And so when I look at the flavor additives and the enhancements, like many of those kind of flavor profiles, like a flaming hot taste in your mouth or, or the gooey texture of um, you know, certain you know, gummy candies, real foods don't have those textures. They don't have that tingle or that burn or, you know, in the same way that the flavor enhancers, um, do that are then coupled with the reward hit of the carbohydrate and the fat. So it it really just could not be better designed (laughs) to really hit all of our buttons. And so I just, I always try and like preach a message of compassion that if people are really struggling with this, It makes perfect sense that you're struggling with this because your brain is in the, you know, back in the stone age and we're competing with like these, you know, very, very rich, very, very wealthy companies that are designing their products. So you eat as much of it as humanly possible, because that's what helps their bottom line. If we did actually only eat these foods in moderation, they wouldn't make the money that they make. Absolutely. And the problem is, is many people just can't eat them in moderation. No, totally. And, And I think in the same way, you know, and that's such a controversial topic I find, you know, in, in this field. Um, But that, that idea that, again, I think just telling people, oh no, it's not about the food. Um, It's just, you know, if you just had a slightly different attitude towards this food and were less stressed about this food, or, you know, weren't trying so hard to kind of have willpower around it, then you would just magically be able to like eat a bowl of ice cream without struggling. And I just think for so many people that we're ignoring all this science, neuroscience, basic science about the power of these you know, intensely rewarding processed foods on the brain and that they seem to be able to sensitize reward systems in a way that does make you, activates that feeling of more and more and more. And I think what's tricky is like, you know, the more powerful the substance, the more it activates that drive and that desire, the more likely people are to try when they're starting to struggle and, and kind of grasp it more and more extreme approaches to try and like get a handle on it. It's like, uh, you know, again, like low alcohol beer. It, it's that like the idea it's so much less potently addictive than something like liquor. And so the way that you might need to people might try and develop strategies to reduce their intake of something like a really low alcohol beer versus, you know, really intense liquor, that really intense liquor is going to make it's going to be more craveable, it's going to be more potent. And so when you're feeling out of control, you will try you will kind of like gravitate towards situations to try and, and manage this really hard pull. So I think it we don't have really intense restriction or, or, you know, grasping at strategies to try and um, get control of our lettuce intake because the lettuce isn't powerful enough to like need us to be like, oh no, I can't stop. I'm gonna like, I don't, you know, so I, to me, it speaks to the power of these substances, the, the degree to which people are trying to cut out their stomach, you know, to get control over it. And still, you know, 20 to 40% of people are regaining the weight and a couple years Like people are trying really hard. It's, it's really challenging. They're not, they're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a really tricky situation. Well, you know, we, it, it sounds like people vary in how vulnerable they are to
0: these yes some sixes exist on a continuum. Some people, people are saying they struggle a lot. Some people struggle less. Is there any way to know in advance? Because when I think of myself, Mm -hmm. I tried uh, alcohol when Mm -hmm. I was in in college and it did nothing for me. I mean, I mean, it made me drunk. I get, I didn't like it. Like it made me, it. So it's like, I don't think, I think, I mean, I mean, I guess under any circumstances, anything's possible, but I, I was never drawn to keep yeah. drinking alcohol, but I tried cigarettes and guess what, for five yeah. years, smoker it. And so, so is there any way to know before taking that first bite, the first puff, you know, the first drink, if we're going to get hooked on the substance? Because I think if that's the case for some people, maybe they would take the abstinence path because once you, once you've tasted it, it's, it's very hard to lose. Yeah.
1: I mean, those memory systems get stamped in like so intensely as well. You know, like you, you, that first time you have ice cream, that first, you, it just that memory and those expectations can really be powerful too. And driving it, you know, we, when it comes to a specific, like, do you know if food is we, we have senses of what is generally going to elevate your propensity and your risk for, um addiction and you know we keep thinking we're going to we will be able to find some sort of brain signature or a specific gene that says okay this this is it you could just get your genome and and you know you're 40% more likely to have an addiction right now we're still kind of struggling uh to be able to really have this objective biomarker, a lot of what we see, and this is for all addictions, not just, you know, in the realm of highly processed foods, that a lot of what we see is some of our best predictors for your general risk for developing um, an addictive response yourself is, you know, do you have a family history of problems. Did your parents struggle? Did your grandparents struggle? Did your siblings kind of struggle? And we do see, there seems to be some association, especially between a family history of alcohol problems and your preference for sugar, like children whose parents had an alcohol problem, like more intense levels of sweetness and at higher levels than children who don't have that family history. And so in general, like, I think if you look at your family and you can say, oh man, there's been a lot of addiction to a variety of substances or behaviors, I'm probably at increased risk. And, and that risk, you don't know whether it might be, you know this specific substance is what gets you or another, but that it is heightened. Um, you know, we, we see in our lab that many of the factors that increase risk across the board, things <laughs> like trauma, Um, childhood adverse experiences, including childhood food insecurity, um, things like struggling with ADHD, where maybe, um, you know, you're struggling with inhibitory control or um, mood issues like depression or, you know, issues with anxiety. All of these factors can kind of make us more vulnerable to um, addictive substances and addictive behaviors. Uh, But also I think a key factor is like the environment we're operating in, you know, it's like cocaine, you know, that's highly addictive. Um, It's really potent in your brain, but it's not around that much. Right. I'm not walking down the street and seeing people like, you know, take cocaine right in front of me. I'm not walking past a billboard every five seconds for cocaine. It's not in the like, you know, storefront when I go to check out and get a stack of paper for my printer. And so we see that even though it's like really effective at engaging our reward and motivation systems, because of the environment it's a drug that isn't as widely used and isn't causing as many public health issues as legal easily accessible drugs like tobacco and alcohol and so man thinking about that with food like the more oppressive the environment the more you're constantly being triggered and cued and it's cheap and it's convenient and it's marketed and it's accessible and uh, socially uh, available you don't have to have that much of a risk profile to start to show some difficulties. And we see the average American shows one to two symptoms of addiction and their intake to highly processed foods. And I think if we were in an environment, we like waved a magic wand and we're back in like, I don't know, let's say like you know the 1910s, you know, or something like that, it's just the food environment. It's not always around. You're not always triggered. These foods aren't everywhere. Uh, They were more treat foods that people got occasionally on like a birthday or a holiday. And so it just was less likely to um, hit as many people in the way that it does now. So I think as the environment changes, your level of personal vulnerability that needs to be present before you start to show signs of struggling is much lower because it's just so triggering all the time, and so we see. Um, just to kind of show a little bit, we just did some research and older adults. And um, when you say research,
0: do people like come
1: into your lab? Can I? Be, yeah. Can I, be a
0: guinea, can I be a guinea pig?
1: Like they come. Yeah. In, uh, it, we do. We live. definitely have people come into the lab, and um, we're actually doing some projects right now to specifically look at withdrawal. Um, so, you know, we see anecdotally people report to us a lot that when, you know, they're eating a lot of these highly intensely rewarding foods, and then they try and cut down that they report symptoms of withdrawal that looks like what we see when people try and stop smoking. You know, they feel irritable for a while and agitated and anxious and depressed and their cravings go up and that can last, you know, a number of weeks until their brain and their body kind of recalibrate. Um, And even then you can kind of still be vulnerable to the cues or in periods of stress where it can kind of reinduce that desire in really intense ways and when we look at animals you know and we look at how their bodies once they've been exposed to the cheesecake and the potato chips and all of that and you try and take away those foods even when they have chow they have you know what's essentially the equivalent of the salad bar you know easy and conveniently available to them um they won't eat those foods. Like their brain is really motivated to try and find that intense hits of food reward. And their systems show heightened stress and they show like teeth chattering. And, you know, I, it's just, it's really striking how those signs of withdrawal can really show up with these foods, but we haven't studied it in a very controlled way in humans. So we're trying to look at that in my lab right now, where we look at people who are reporting kind of this an addiction profile, a lot of addiction symptoms and their intake of highly processed foods. And then we're seeing what happens if we put them on, you know, either keep them on that kind of same diet, or we put them on a, a diet for a week and we take away all their chocolate and their potato chips, like in that first week, are people going to be showing, reporting more signs of irritability and agitation and enhanced cravings? Is their brain gonna be more reactive to food cues? Are they gonna show great in, um, heart rate reactivity to stressors? And then does that predict a tendency to lapse, a tendency to not be able to stick to the healthier eating. Um, So those are the sorts of things that we're doing in our lab. Um, We'll also reach out to people kind of where they are and ask them um, this, this study Right here was um, us looking at a uh, nationally representative sample of older adults, 55 years of age and older, and doing an assessment of um, uh, the the core signs of addiction and their highly processed food intake and looking at what that was associated with. And what we see here is um, that if we look at older adults, you know, 13% of them met criteria for an addiction to highly processed food based on the, the key diagnostic criteria for, you know, a substance use disorder that we use to diagnose, you know, alcohol, alcohol addiction or tobacco addiction. And that's, that really is on par with what we see with the level of people who are getting addicted to things like alcohol and tobacco. It actually exceeds it in this age group. Um, but 44% of people indicated at least one or more symptoms. And if we think about that, you know, on a widespread level, if people are feeling enough of that craving, enough of that kind of loss of control, enough of that, you know, I can't eat this in moderation, that they're eating even, you know, a couple extra hundred calories a day. I mean, that has really core um health consequences, uh, it increases your risk for excessive weight gain for diabetes. And so we see the most common symptoms were really intense cravings an inability to cut down despite a desire to do so. So compulsivity and withdrawal people reported when they tried to cut down, they felt like they went through withdrawal and this was, you know, meaningful. And that, um, that people, what you see here, is it broken down that women, um, particularly women in the 50 to 64 age group, almost one out of every five was meeting the clinical threshold for highly processed food addiction, um, higher than men, and that people who were endorsing this um, were more likely to be in poor physical health, more likely to have poor Um, mental health. I mean, 43% of of women with, you know, that that had that food addiction threshold reported having poor mental health. And they reported that they were more likely to be overweight. And so when we look at this group of people, if we're kind of stuck if this exists, and these substances are addictive, and this level of clinical impairment is going on in our society, and we're ignoring it. And we're not you know, it is an official diagnosis right now. It isn't something that we're, you know, diagnosing and treating and developing you know, treatments for. This is a whole lot of human suffering that is going completely unaccounted for. And it, you know, when we think in contrast, what we see for binge eating disorder is about 1% of people a year are meeting for binge eating disorder, less than 1% of people are meeting for bulimia nervosa. And we really care about that. We should. That's a lot of people who are suffering. This is like, is it 22% of women in a nationally representative sample who are 50 to 64 meet for clinically significant impairment or distress around addictive indicators of highly processed food intake. I mean, that's just not okay and with kids we see that about 12% of children are meeting a full clinically significant impairment or distress addiction profile in their intake of highly processed foods. I mean think about any other addiction in children it's pretty much non-existent you know we don't see 12% of children being addicted to cigarettes um, at least not anymore because we protect them and we don't when it comes to these foods.
0: I'm curious, do you consume processed foods or feed
1: it to your children? Because the reason I ask, your skin
0: is flawless.
1: Oh, uh, they, that's, that's totally a filter, but um, no, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, you know, I approach it right now and the way where I uh, kind of how I approach alcohol. So like, you know, I think alcohol is an addictive substance. Um, I will consume it. I know that when I consume it, it comes with a risk and that I need to be thoughtful about that. And I need to monitor that. Um, in my life right now, I try for myself and my kids to try and make the default, not highly processed food that the majority of the intake of our calories are nourishing real food that when I look at the ingredient list, I know what it is. Do we sometimes consume that? You know, yes. And my and so far, you know, for myself or my kids, I, you know, there doesn't seem to be, like you said, that kind of trigger where it is that. Um, you know, kind of compulsive pattern, but that doesn't mean it wouldn't happen. And it doesn't mean that I shouldn't be thoughtful about the risk, you know, and that I shouldn't monitor that. And it can start to creep up. It can start to take on a life of its own before you even realize it. And so um, I really think of it as a very, very, you know, like a sometimes product that I, that deserves a to have um, a conscious, mindful awareness of it. And I sure as heck don't want it being, you know, 70% of my diet or my child's diet, because that is what the average is for the average American child is 70% of calories from ultra processed food. Which, yeah, which is
0: food, yeah.
1: And then I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just like for parents having two little kids, It's so hard to be a parent. I'm so tired. (laughs) And and, uh, especially in the era of COVID. And I'm really thoughtful that for me, kind of more of the reason that I feel able to have more nourishing foods as part of, you know, a large part of my intake is because I am really privileged. You know, I am highly educated about this, I, I can financially afford food. And even then, what I do for my family, and I want to actually, we're actually testing this as a potential treatment for depression, is, uh, you know, my husband and I have, there's a this awesome um, catering company that makes real food, real meals, real nourishing meals. And on Tuesdays, they come drop off like big family style portions of, you know, uh, Mediterranean chicken and farro salad and just sauteed veggies and all of this. And so for me, when I've been like teaching all day, my husband's been working all day and we come home, we got our two little kids hanging off us, being able to heat up these convenient, accessible for us, affordable meals to feed our family makes this so much more doable in our current life than if I had to be coming home and then like prepping that from scratch, like I'm just I'm just aware of that for myself, and so I really think that we need to be creative at uh, thinking about how do we make real because like real food is actually super tasty, it nourishes us, it's yummy, um, it doesn't induce that sense of like moorishness, right, where you kind of want more and you don't actually feel satisfied, but it's not convenient often. You know, like real food is just not convenient. So I really want to think about ways in our food supply that we can make it more, you know, actual meals convenient and the default for people. Um, So they're just ready to go at home. I think we need both. You know, we need to teach people to cook and to do, you know, to engage in that. I think it can be so rewarding and such an awesome activity. And, Especially for high-stressed people, maybe food insecure people, um, you know, single moms, all these sorts of things. We also have to meet people where they are and set them up so they have access to convenient, nourishing, affordable, minimally processed meals. Absolutely, I know you have to go, but I'd love to have you back to
0: talk about uh, this idea of abstinence versus harm reduction. But I'm curious, what are all those words behind you on the board?
1: That is the the withdrawal project we're currently launching, um, which is, uh, you know, one of the reasons I'm very stressed. <laughs> Uh, which is a really exciting project. I'm incredibly excited about it. It's all the different things that we'll be doing where we'll be looking at people's blood glucose levels. We'll be looking at objective measures of their sleep. We'll be looking at how their brain responds to a chocolate milkshake cue. We'll be looking at how they respond to stressors, how they respond to being in our simulated fast food environment. We'll be sending them um, messages every day where we'll be asking them how they feel in the moment um, around symptoms of withdrawal. And then we'll be following them to see how that predicts how they do in the long term so i am so thrilled and i really have to give a big shout out to the national institute of drug abuse for funding this research um, because you know it really is uh key and essential to our well-being and our understanding so I'm, i'm i'm thrilled to be able to do this science and to try and um you know improve whether the our understanding of whether these foods truly are triggering mechanisms of addiction in a way that's keeping us hooked and that we need courageous action to improve the health of our children of of the of the globe really great well thank you so much for
0: your work i really enjoyed talking to you
1: it was so lovely speaking with you as well thank you for inviting me
0: My pleasure. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific time. My guest is Omad Hawazi. He's going to be talking about sustainable future for farming. Take care, everyone. Bye.